Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. How many of you are being blessed by the sermon series that Pastor Alex is doing on the church in Ephesus? I can tell you that I am. So good, son. So good. Now, you may recall when he spoke a couple weeks ago, he was talking about how we can receive a new life in Christ. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is just to expand a little bit on the subject of new life. In his sermon from two weeks ago, Pastor Alex taught us that God does not offer to take away our old sinful life and make it clean. He said, nor nor does, does God offer to repair the old life we've messed up. No, God offers us an entirely new life. One we haven't screwed up yet. Right? He will do that if, everybody say if, if we will agree to be ruled by a new master. Now, in other words, becoming a Christian does not mean adding religion and church and Jesus to your life. It does mean dying to yourself, getting rid of your old life, and beginning all over. We hear, we hear by the way, of this amazing offer in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.17 we read that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. New life has begun. This new life is, is uh, born in the deepest part of ourselves, in our spirit. And God intends for this new spiritual life to renew our physical and to renew our psychological too. However, since God has created each of us with an independent will, and each of us have a freedom to choose, this renewal of our bodies and our minds requires our cooperation. I mean, many times we're just not sure we want to cooperate. I mean, this new life, it is unfamiliar, it is uncomfortable, and quite frankly, it sometimes seems to make no sense at all. For example, when someone does us wrong, we're expected to forgive them, even when they don't show any remorse. And then we have to keep on forgiving them over and over and over. It's crazy. If someone slaps us, not only are we not to hit them back, we're supposed to turn the other cheek and invite them to do it again. If someone steals our coat, we're supposed to offer them our shirt too. If we want to be first, how do you do that? You have to be last. If we want to have more, we're instructed to give away more. It's absolute, absolutely ridiculous. Doesn't this sound ridiculous? It's insane. How about this one? We're supposed to take the first 10% of our income and give it to the Lord, even when we don't have enough to live on. Well, now, the reason these things seem so unnatural or weird, downright foolish, is that we are still looking at these things through the eyes of our old nature. It's only when we trust our new master enough to obey him that we begin to see. True understanding will never come until we go ahead 
and do what he says. How many of you have played the game of checkers? I, I say this and I'm saying, because you know, maybe it's a game that nobody plays anymore. That's an old, that's an old game. Has anybody here not played checkers? Never played checkers in your life? No, everybody's played checkers. Cool. What's the goal? Take your opponent's pieces, get to the king row, get crowned, and then continue until you're the only one with pieces left, right? Okay. Well, have you ever played giveaway? Where the winner is the first player to lose all of his pieces. Have you played that? With checkers? Well, if you're used to playing regular checkers, the game of giveaway is hard because your natural instinct is to take pieces, not give them away. And that's the way it is with God, you see. His ways are often the exact opposite of our natural inclinations. Well, that is until we trust Him enough to obey. But be encouraged. The more you obey, the more His ways become your ways. Now, one of God's ways that provides a great challenge to many people is giving generously. And the reason so many people have a hard time giving is that they adhere to the theory of limited supply. This limited supply theory says that there's only so much and when it's gone, there'll be no more. There's only so much food. There's only so much air. Only so much water. Only so much money. Only so much anything. And this theory, of course, is a product of believing that there is no creator. Or that the creator is somehow absent. Which means what we see is all there is. And when it's gone, it's gone. Now, to clarify, there is a difference between limited supply and limited availability. For example, if you eat all the pork chops before anyone else gets any, or, or maybe you don't eat any pork chops at all because you want to make sure there's enough for everyone else, when you think like that, that's limited availability. But if you believe that hogs are going to stop reproducing, and that when the present pig population is eaten, there will be no more pigs. That's believing in limited supply. Do you see the difference? Some of you knew my late uncle, Charlie Sharp, who came up with this fresh idea in the insurance industry. And he then worked very hard to implement his idea. He's invested everything he had into it. He surrounded himself with smart people. And as a result, he became quite wealthy. And during his life, people would come to him often and they would say, Mr. Sharp, will you give me some of your money? <laughs> and when he asked why he should do that, and this, I'm not making this up, they, this happened often. And he'd say, why should I do that? They would say, well, because you have it and we don't. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They thought the reason they didn't have it was because my uncle did have it. And since they believed in limited supply, they couldn't see how it was possible for my uncle and them to both have enough money. And then for some unknown reason, they felt it was, he was somehow obligated to give them some of his. In their minds, see, they didn't think it was fair for him 
to have more than them. And so rather than being creative and coming up with their own ideas, they wanted to benefit from his creativity, which, by the way, they didn't really think was creativity at all. Many of them thought he must have cheated or he must have taken advantage of somebody in order to get his money. I mean, from their point of view, there's only so much money and he has more than his share. And yes, okay, I'm sure you could easily connect what I'm saying to the idea of socialism that says there's a limited supply which must be shared. Or capitalism which says, hey, we can just work and make more. But I'm not talking about that. What I'm really saying is there's a difference between the idea of limited supply versus unlimited supply of a creator God. Are you with me? If I didn't have lights on out here, I would think there was no one here. Oh, there's somebody. Thank you. Now, as Pastor Alex said a couple weeks ago, belief in God is one thing, and faith in God is another. I mean, you can believe in God without trusting Him, can't you? In fact, one definition of faith that I like is faith is confidence in the testimony of another. Isn't that a good one? As Christians, our faith is actually confidence in God. And what does the Scripture say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Therefore, catch this now, if you want to grow in your ability to believe God, you need to be in the Word. You need to be hearing God so that you will have more faith in God. Your ability to trust God is directly related to the input of God's Word into your life. Now, I commend you for being in church every week, you know, to uh, hear the Word preached. But are you reading your Bible on your own every day? And if not, I encourage you to begin. By the way, you're also encouraged and invited to attend the Foundations class with me on Sunday mornings before church. This morning, if you weren't there, Pastor Alex taught the class, and you missed something really, really, really good, and we did not record it. That's what happens in that class. You miss it, you miss it. So, you don't want to miss that. Okay, there you go. That's my introduction. (laughs) With all this said, let's allow God to increase our faith as we hear Him speak to us from John 6 and Matthew 4. We're going to read some scripture together. Okay. So here we go. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Well, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And when Jesus looked up, and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Hey, Philip, where shall we buy food, bread for these people to eat? Now, he, he asked this only to test him. This says it right in the Bible. She's behind the curtain. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Well, Philip answered him, Well, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he spoke up. 
Hey, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sat down. Sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. That's a cool line right there. How much did they get? You know, want to go back for seconds, thirds? As much as you wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And if the next slide comes on, I'll tell you some more. Okay. (laughs) The story continues in the book of Matthew. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets. This is what's left over after everybody had all they wanted. 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The number of those who ate, how many? About 5,000 men. And that's not counting the women and the children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, what did Jesus do? He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Well, later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. How? Walking on the lake. We just, isn't it funny how we read things just blow right past them? Like, yeah, Jesus was walking on the lake. Yeah, come on. One guy said, I know what happened. He knew where the rocks were. Yeah, but I, that's, not, that's not how it was. <laughs> but if that was true, that'd still be something. <laughs> when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Okay. Two pretty powerful stories. Here's another little story for you. It was Saturday, and mom decided to clean out the leftovers from the refrigerator. She gave one remaining portion of spaghetti to her six-year-old son, Jeremy. Her eight-year-old son, Matthew, however, he wanted some too. So the bickering began. After several unsuccessful attempts to mediate the dispute, she decided she would take a theological approach, hoping to convince Jeremy to share his portion with Brother Matthew. She said, Jeremy, what would Jesus do in this situation? And Jeremy didn't hesitate at all. He says, that's easy, Mom. he just make more. <laughs> hey, little Jeremy was right. You know, that's exactly what Jesus would do. He'd just make some more. 
It would be good for us to remember this, I think, as a church. When we think about our assignment of reaching the world with the good news that will introduce them to Jesus and will save their souls, our biggest problem is not lack of faith. Excuse me, our biggest problem is a lack of faith, not a lack of supply. We think it's supply. We think it's a lack of resources. It's not a lack of resources. It's a lack of faith. We may not realize it, but we are rich in financial strength. We are rich in talent. We've only scratched the surface of giving in either of those areas. What we lack is faith. Because do you realize we can feed all the hungry people in the world? Oh, not not this church by itself. But remember, there are 2 billion Christians on the earth. 2 billion. We could heal conflicts between the nations of our world. We could give comfort to the lonely. We could give freedom to the captive. We could give hope to the desperate. We have the supply because we're connected to the supplier. All we lack is faith. You remember what Christ said. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Apparently, the problem is not our lack of supply. It's our lack of faith. So once again, let's remember what faith is. Faith is confidence in the testimony of another. So yes, we can tell a mountain to move. Listen, this is big stuff here. You can tell a mountain to move and it will move. If, everybody say if. If If God said it would move. See, the key is that God said it. Faith is the confidence that whatever God says will happen. Are you following me? We have people going around all the time saying they're believing God for something when God never said it. You can't believe God for something God didn't say and expect that's going to work. Before we can believe God, God must say something for us to believe. Right? Makes sense. So when God asks us to have faith in Him, what's He doing? He's simply asking us to trust that whatever He says is true. Even when it doesn't turn out the way you think it should turn out. When you pray for something and you want it to be this way, and it looks like that would be the right thing to do, it doesn't happen. Do you still trust God? So when God asks us to have faith, He just wants us to do it. He, he, by the way, He explains this further in Hebrews eleven six 6 when He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Will you say that with me? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Here's the translation. If we won't believe what He says, He's not pleased. Now, since today is Father's Day, let me use an illustration from my life as a dad. As most of you know, Debbie and I have two children, Stephanie and Alex. Since there's 10 years between them, it was kind of like each one of them was an only child. 
It's a pretty cool deal, really, if you think about it all. It's, it, it should be, family planning should be like this. <laughs> because you see, when Alex was born, Stephanie was 10. He had a built-in babysitter. And then by the time he was ready to go to school, she had her driver's license. We didn't have to mess with him at all. I mean, she just <laughs> take care of the whole deal. Anyway, yes, I'm kidding. She didn't get her driver's license. No, no. No, here's the deal. Uh, listen, we love both of our children the same. And we had the same standards for both of our children. And we applied the same methods of discipline. But although that's true, one child was much more challenging than the other. Oh, I get that their personalities are different. And one's a girl, one's a boy. But I've concluded that the primary difference in raising them was their faith. Oh, no, no, not their faith in God. No, no, no. I'm talking about their faith in me. You see, I told my children that I loved them. That I would never say no to any good fun thing they wanted to do. Unless, unless, unless it was something I felt wasn't safe or was not, in fact, good for them. One child believed me. One child did not. One had confidence in what I said. The other did not. And because, now you're going to find out which is which, right? Because Alex trusted me I knew I could trust him. Therefore, Alex was given privileges and freedoms and opportunities to enjoy much. And that pleased me because I love him and I never wanted to withhold any good thing from him. I want you to know I love my daughter just as much and I never wanted to withhold any good thing from her either. However, Everyone say however. <laughs> however, because Stephanie would not believe me because she thought I was keeping some really fun stuff from her with no reason. And because she doubted me, because she didn't have faith in me, I could not trust her with as many privileges or freedoms. And therefore, she had much less fun and many fewer opportunities than she could have. She experienced more pain and she missed a lot, which did not please me at all. The difference between the two kids was faith. One chose to have faith in me. One did not. Are you tracking with me? It's okay if you say something. How about if, if you're here, just say amen. amen. If you hear something you like, you can say that. If you hear something you don't like, you can say, oh, me, instead of amen. <laughs> but something. <laughs> okay. In today's gospel lesson, Jesus is on a mountainside with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast is coming up. He looks around. He sees a crowd of people coming up the mountain. 
well, it was actually more like a small army, 5,000 men, even greater number of women and children. Now that, friends, is a lot of hungry people. That's even a little bit scary. I mean, imagine we were having a church banquet here and 2,000 people showed up. Man, we'd be running around in a complete panic. Not Jesus. Jesus didn't panic. Instead, he turns to Philip. He says, hey, Philip, where are we going to buy the food to feed these people? Now, I think it's interesting, like I said earlier, the writer of John says Jesus asked us just to test Philip. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Incidentally, that's something you may want to write down or note. Jesus sometimes tests us. Anyway, that's a side point. Anyway, Philip answered. He said, even eight months' wages wouldn't be enough for each person to have a single bite. And then Andrew, this other disciple, he spoke up and said, hey, here's a little boy. He got five barley loaves, two small fish. But how far will that go? You see, as far as the disciples were concerned, listen, the problem was supply. They didn't have enough resources. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew they did not have a supply problem. Jesus knew they had a faith problem. Reminds me of the story of a little nine-year-old Danny. He came bursting out of the Sunday school class like a wild stallion. His eyes were darting in every direction as he tried to locate his mom or his dad. Finally, after a quick search, he grabbed his daddy by the leg. He yelled, man, that story of Moses and all those people crossing the Red Sea was awesome. His father smiled. He said, well, tell me about it, son. Okay, well, the Israelites, they got out of Egypt. But Pharaoh and his army chased after them. And so the Jews ran as fast as they could, and they got to the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army was getting closer and closer and closer. So Moses got on his walkie-talkie, and he told the Israeli Air Force to bomb the Egyptians. And while that was happening, the Israeli Navy built a big pontoon bridge so the people could cross over, and they made it. Well, Dad raised an eyebrow and said, Now, Danny, is that the way they taught you the story? And Danny admitted, Well, no, not exactly. But there's no way you'd believe what they said. <laughs> and with childlike innocence, little Danny put his finger right on the pulse of our sophisticated adult world, a world where cool skepticism reigns supreme. But would you really, would you be surprised to learn that this is not really a new mentality? In fact, St. Peter, in one of his letters in the Bible, he mentions it. He says, I want to remind you that in the last days there will come scoffers who will laugh at the truth. This will be their line of argument. So Jesus promised to come back, did he? Well, then where is he? He'll never come. Why, as far back as I can remember, everything has remained exactly as it was since the first day of creation. You see, that's how skeptics think. Nothing ever changes, they say. Take gravity. Heavy objects fall toward the earth always. Therefore, a builder can construct a house, never worry about his materials floating away. Not ever. 
Take chemistry. You mix certain elements in precise proportions, and it will yield the same results. Always. This is why a doctor can prescribe a medication with predictable confidence. Take astronomy. The sun, the moon, the stars, they work in perfect harmony. Always. Even the mysterious eclipse comes as no surprise. Take anatomy, whether it's the pupil of the eye expanding, contracting in response to the light, or our skin regulating our body temperature, or our built-in defense mechanism fighting disease. Hey, we operate strictly on the basis of facts. Hard, immutable, stubborn facts. Reliable as a sunset, as real as a toothache. They're absolute, unbending, they're undeniable. Hey, Jesus, what do you mean give them something to eat? All we have is five loaves of bread and a two fish. Hey, Jesus, these are the facts. I think you'd know that. You're not a very good Messiah. You're missing some stuff here. Five and two, five and two, five and two, no more, no less. Five and two. We'll just have to send the people home, Jesus. We simply cannot take care of them today. Now, I know we can't help it. But when we today read of Jesus' life, we always read it backwards. I mean, we already know how it turns out. We know what happened. But on that day, no one but Jesus had a clue. And you know what he did? Had the people sit down in groups of 50. He then took the two salted fish and the five small loaves of bread. He performed a miracle that was recorded in every one of the Gospels. Mark tells about it this way. He said, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. Wow. When they trusted enough to do what the Lord said. Five loaves, two fish provided more than enough for thousands. It's when they had the faith to take action. I mean, if the boy hadn't given his offering, he wouldn't have seen it multiplied. If the disciples hadn't followed the Lord's instructions, they would have missed out on the miracle. It's important to recognize. I'm getting ready to say something important here in case you've been dozing off. Nudge your neighbor. <clears throat> it's important to recognize that God's love is unconditional. But his blessings are not. God's love provides blessings, but it's our faith that schedules them. God loves everybody just the same. He doesn't bless everybody just the same. No, he blesses us according to our faith, which is demonstrated, how? By our willingness to trust him enough to do what he says. Trust him enough to obey. Never doubt, never doubt that God wants to give us good things. But he wants us to love him, not the things. I'm so glad that he provides a way for us to prove that we want him and not the things. What's he do? He says, put aside your own desires and your own ideas and trust me enough to do what I say.
John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. Which is easy to just turn it around and realize if you don't do what I command, you don't love me. And, but when we prove our love, how does he respond? With blessing. If all Christians would trust God more than their intellect and more than their feelings and more than their circumstances, the world would see the awesome love and power of God and be drawn to them. But I want to address one more obstacle to faith before we finish today, and that obstacle is fear. Now, we don't usually have a problem with fear until we decide to obey the Lord and exercise our faith. And that's when the enemy comes in and tries to shake us and tries to break us, tries to stop us. Case in point, as we read, Simon Peter. Jesus, walking on the water, calls to Peter. Peter says, come and get out of the boat and walk to me. And don't miss this. Peter was actually able to walk on the water. And he didn't know where the stones were. He could walk on the water as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. But when he looked around at the big waves and started thinking about how impossible this was, what he was doing, he started to sink. His fear overcame his faith and caused him to lose confidence in the words of the master. Now listen, if we live by sight, we'll always see the impossibilities of life and we'll be afraid. And I'll tell you, the only way to function when you're afraid is stay in the boat, forget about everybody but yourself, use all your strength to row and hope against hope that you can make it safely to shore. If we live by faith, however, We'll see only Jesus. This is the difference between those who have heard and believe the truth about Jesus and those who have heard and believed the truth about Jesus and acted upon that belief. Faith is belief in action. So until we act on our belief, it's not faith. And without faith, there's no salvation. The salvation experience must include trusting Christ, getting out of the boat, keeping our eyes on him, and doing what he says, which, by the way, may include walking on water. How cool is that? So some of you may be asking, what? all right, so just what does all this mean, Pastor Jim? Well, I'll tell you. It means that by faith... We can do what seems impossible. It means that by faith, we can have everlasting, never-ending, eternal life. It means by faith, all our needs are met in Christ Jesus. It, by faith, we love so others will see what God is like. By faith, we give our time and our energy and our finances to advance God's body, his church on the earth. By faith, we serve the Lord by giving our gifts and talents to enable God's work to go forward for God's love to be experienced. And by faith, other people can be saved from sin and death. Yes, we can be used to do the supernatural if we will simply get out of the boat 
ignore the storms, and keep following Jesus. New life comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in anything else. Acts 4.12 says there's only one name under heaven by which man can be saved. And it's not Muhammad. It's not Allah. It's not Buddhist, Buddhism, not, not the Buddha, not Confucius. It's Jesus, one name. Anybody that's trusting in the other names is lost. Like I've said many times, if there are many ways to God, Jesus is not one of them because he's a liar. Because he said he's the only way. So he's either the only way or he's none of the ways. So do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have it? Do you want it? Well, if you want new life to begin for you today, or even if you have already, now listen, if you already are living your new life, either one, you want, you would like to begin, or you already are, will you just lift your hand? I'm already living my life for Christ, or I want to start today. Repeat this prayer after me. Will you do this? Lord, I believe you are the Son of God. Please forgive me for not trusting you. I do want the new life you are offering. By faith, I receive it now. In your holy name, I pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.